Colossians chapter 1. We're back in 15 through 20. Hear the word of our God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him (coughs) to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let us pray. Most gracious God, our Heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells all fullness of light and wisdom. Illumine our minds, we beseech you, by your Holy Spirit, in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace that we may receive it with reverence and humility. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone, and so to serve and honor you, that we may glorify your name, and edify our neighbors by good example. And since it has pleased you to number us among your people, help us to give you love and homage that we owe, as children to our Father, as servants to our Lord. We ask this for the sake of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. For those of you who aren't familiar... This was the big, one of the big weeks in baseball because the Baseball Writers Association made all of the announcements about manager of the year, Cy Young award winner. For those of you who don't follow baseball, it's best pitcher, most valuable player. All of these awards were, were announced this week. And so geeks like me like this week. It's sort of a time where there's a little bit of controversy that can erupt. And this year, the controversy was about the American League MVP. Should it have been Miguel Cabrera, who who uh, got the Triple Crown for the first time since Carl Yastrzemski did it back in 1967. So that's over a generation of time. We're talking, you know, almost my entire lifetime. No one has ever done this. And finally, Miguel Cabrera does or whether it should have been the guy who was also the AL Rookie of the Year, Mike Trout, who just had a phenomenal season, and by all of the news statistics that they kind of throw at us now, you know, had a far superior year than even Miguel Cabrera. And so there's controversy, and people like me kind of like that, you know. I'm strange, I know. But about each of those awards, we have to recognize that uh, none of these men did these things alone. The manager of the year is not the manager of the year unless he has a team that performs according to his intentions. 
that the best pitcher in baseball will do nothing if he does not have a team that fields behind him, and he will not win games unless the offense also scores runs. And so it's not just his own performance that matters, but it's also the performance of the other, other eight men on the field around him, particularly the catcher. That the, the best hitter only gets that signification because he's also driving in runs, and you only drive in runs if someone ahead of you in the order gets on base. And you're only going to see good pitches to hit to drive that guy in is if there's a good enough hitter behind you to protect you so you're not just getting walked every time someone's on base. So all of these best guys all need someone else to help them. They need someone to complement them. They need someone to supplement them. As we're... Uh, as we're looking at this uh, letter to the Colossian church. What, we're, what Paul wants us to completely understand is that Jesus does not need, need anyone to complement him or to supplement him. This was the problem of the false teachers. They said, oh, yeah, yes, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need this. You needed angels. You needed circumcision. You needed to have an ascetic sort of lifestyle with all kinds of rules. You have Jesus to save you for your, from your sins, but you need something else to grow into fullness. And what Paul is saying is, no. What you need, all you need, is Christ. So, he's in the midst of that argument. Uh, here we have, we're, we're kind of dealing again, second week, with this hymn that he um, probably wrote, but maybe he borrowed. We're not really sure. And we're going to look at how he talks about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And it's from what he does here that he's going to apply it into all those other areas throughout the rest of the letter. And so this really is the heart of this letter to the Colossians. <coughs> Our big idea this morning is that Jesus is supreme over the church, that he is sufficient to save. As I was looking over this and had it all whiteboarded out, I said, there's no way in the world this is fitting into a three-point sermon. So you get four today. You have a bonus point today. The first point, not the bonus point, but the regular one, is that Jesus is sufficient for all the needs of the church. As I mentioned, this hymn, is, which is the heart of this letter, but it also begins to shift focus. Uh, in the first part of the letter, I mean, not the letter, but of this hymn, it talks about how he is supreme, preeminent over all of creation because he is the one through whom everything was made. Everything that was created was created by Jesus. Not only was it created by Jesus, it was created for Jesus for his glory, for his pleasure. And not only was it created, you know, this is not like deism where God kind of makes things and then walks away. But Paul also says, and I didn't really deal with this last week, he holds it all together. He keeps it together. Yes, he uses the natural laws. He made the natural laws that keep all of those things. So that whole strong nuclear force thing. He made that. That's how he keeps it together. Everything holds together in Jesus Christ. And so he is 
He is exalted over all things as the firstborn. It's a, it's a title of status, as we talked about last week and looked at a couple passages to see how that phrase is, that word is used in the Old Testament. So if you weren't here, I suggest you kind of go back and, and uh, listen to that. And um, it's on the website, I think. And if it's not yet, it will soon be. But now he's shifting from the creation to the new creation. He's shifting the focus. He starts off here in the second half of this with he is the head of the body, the church. Paul and Timothy reveal Jesus as exalted over the church as its head. There's two aspects that are connected with this idea of being the head of something. And the first aspect is that the head is the source of life for the church. In other words, Jesus supplies life and nurture to the church. When we think of what your head does, okay, it's one of the things is it, is it keeps all of those involuntary actions going. It keeps your heart beating. It keeps your lungs going. And so because of those two things, all of that blood travels throughout your body and continues to sustain the life that you have. That's what your head does. Okay? It serves, you know, it sends these pulses through your nervous system and it controls all of those things that you don't even think about. I mean, no, how many of you, unless you're in dire trouble, you don't go, I need to breathe now. Heart. Can you beat a little faster, please? We don't think about any of those things. Our brain does it all. It controls all of those things. And so the head continues to give life to the rest of your body. If your head stops doing those things, your body's going to die. Okay? And so the head is a source of life to the body. None of you can live if you're decapitated. Right, Dr. Knight? Usually, yeah. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> okay, anyway. Um, and so the, the, the church looks to Christ as the source of its life, just as a body, in a sense, looks to the head for its source of light. And so, uh, life, we see that Jesus converts sinners by the power of the Spirit, that Jesus matures saints by the power of the Spirit, that he sends to do those very things. And so we are to depend upon Christ for those things. If, we, if there's someone that we want to see converted to come into the invisible church, we pray that Jesus would convert them. If we see a saint who is struggling with sin, and sometimes that's us, we pray that Jesus would sanctify them, would mature them, would be at work in them. And he does. So we're to look to him for these things. That's not it, or all that it is. Paul also talks about this idea of Christ being the head of the church in Ephesians chapter 5. He does it within the context of marriage, and he goes a couple different ways with this. In Ephesians 5, we read, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And so Paul again brings this idea to the plate, but then he kind of makes this 
um, shift where he talks about how a wife should submit to her husband just as, and here's the important part that I'm talking about, the church submits to Christ. And so it's not just a matter of the source of life. Being the head also has the idea of being the ruler, the authority of the body. Not only does the head keep the body alive through the involuntary nervous system, but it also, through the voluntary nervous system, tells the body what to do. If we were playing baseball, all of that stuff about the mechanics of a pitcher are controlled by the head. You know, there's muscle memory in there and all that stuff, but, you know, I'm going to throw a fastball. Therefore, my fingers have to go a certain way. Now is the time when I need to start my wind-up. The hitter... Down there, waiting, says, okay, now my eyes see that this is going to be a fastball. Wait, 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 now swing. Okay, the head controls all of these things. All right? Sort of like, actually, the manager in baseball. He controls who's on the field and when they're on the field and what they're doing on the field. He controls all of that. He decides who's pitching, who's not pitching. He decides who's going to go to hit and who's not going to go to hit. The manager is, in a sense, like the head of the baseball team. Christ determines what happens in the church. He determines what we are supposed to be doing, just as the manager determines what a team is supposed to be doing. The church, in response to Jesus, as we saw in Ephesians 5, is to therefore submit to him to recognize him as the only authority, that there is no vicar of Christ on earth. Okay? It's Christ. Okay? We, (laughs) the session, are supposed to submit to Him. We have no authority of our own to tell you what to do. We can make suggestions about certain things. But if, if we are to command you something, it is to be because Christ has commanded it. That's all we do. And so Christ is the ultimate, the supreme head of the church. He is supreme over the church and meets its needs out of his sufficiency. So secondly, (coughs) in addition to Jesus being sufficient for the needs of the church, we see that Jesus initiated the new creation in his resurrection. Paul builds upon this theme with the word, the beginning. We see that, uh, well, we did see that this morning in Sunday school in uh, Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said that he is the beginning there, so he's consistent with Paul. Don't you love the consistency of Scripture? Okay? Not going to say one thing someplace and another thing somewhere else. He is the beginning. This refers to the priority. It could mean priority of time or priority of authority. In this instance, I believe it means he has priority of authority precisely because of his priority of time. He existed before it all existed. Therefore, he has authority over it all. This is the same for the new creation. Because he's the beginning of the new creation. He has priority of time, chronology, and therefore, he has priority of authority over this new creation. <clears throat> he rules, in a sense, as the first cause. 
We see this again in Revelation 1. Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Okay, he's not saying the Alpha and the Omega this time. He'll say that later. Okay, so again, we have that word first, the beginning. It's the same word, the, you know, the RK. All right. But he says, and the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. And so, because Jesus died and was resurrected, he's saying, I have the keys or I have the authority over, what do you say? Death in Hades. Later on, he'll talk about it in terms of, uh, you know, um, access to the kingdom with the keys of David. He's sovereign over heaven and hell because of his status as the beginning and the end. Paul says here that he is the firstborn from the dead. This, again, repeats that that word that we found in the first part, that he was the firstborn of creation. Now Paul is saying that he is the firstborn from the dead. He has the status of being exalted as the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean for him to be the firstborn of the dead? It means he has an exalted status over the new creation. Jesus was the first to be resurrected. And now some of you might go, now wait a minute, what about Lazarus? What about the, the widow's son? Both in the, we find that in the New Testament. Uh, we find that in the Old Testament as well. What about the rabbi's daughter? They were not resurrected. They were resuscitated. There's a difference. Because a resuscitated person dies again. Lazarus died. Okay? You can't go anywhere on the face of this earth and find Lazarus walking around today. Okay, you may find a guy named Lazarus, but he's not the same one. The you know the brother of Martha and Mary that Jesus res- uh, resuscitated on that day after four days in the tomb. Not going to find him. Okay, <clears throat> Jesus was resurrected, meaning he now has life that will never end. Lazarus will be resurrected one day with the rest of us. And he will partake of life, physical life and spiritual life. That will never end. But Jesus is the first. He is the guarantee of all. He is the one from which all of us are able to partake of the resurrection that is coming. So he's the source of the resurrection, not just for us, the righteous, but also for the unrighteous. He has the keys of death in Hades. He has the authority to send people. When Jesus talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats, he sends the goats away into the fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not like they want to go. He sends them. He's in charge as the judge of them. Okay. But we see something in first in Second Corinthians five that I think is very important. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. And so when someone 
is united to Christ, when they're converted, they begin to partake of that new creation. It's not complete yet, but it has begun. You are now, a, you who believe in Christ now, you are now part of the new creation. Not done yet. That will, that will be fulfilled at the resurrection and, and therefore the restoration of all things, but you are already a part of the new creation. Only those who are in Christ partake of the new creation for their well-being. We do good to remember that. Why is he the firstborn from the dead? Paul and Timothy write, that in everything he might be preeminent, supreme, most important. He'd be the best. One of the fun things about baseball is not just talking about who had the best year, but who was the best player ever. And that will never get settled. But I'll throw out a name for you. Babe Ruth. Until recently, no one had ever hit as many home runs as Babe Ruth. So he was a great power hitter. He hit for great average. But he's also done something that no one else who ever won those kinds of awards ever did, and that was win a World Series game as a pitcher. Boston Red Sox. 1918. He's the only one who did both. Was an outstanding hitter and an outstanding pitcher. Who knows what would have happened if the Yankees hadn't have made him a full-time hitter. He certainly wouldn't have gotten 714 home runs, but how, I wonder how many victories he would have won as a pitcher. He potentially could have been the greatest. But he still had to rely on other people. Jesus doesn't. He's supreme. He is the best. He is self-sufficient in all of this. The babe, when he pitched, may have been able to knock in the winning runs, but he certainly couldn't field all the hits, you know, defend the whole field. So nothing we see is beyond the rule and authority of Jesus. And, and there's something that's very important here. Jesus does not supplement a religion that you might have. Um, I'll talk about this in a little bit. Um, But Jesus supplants everything that you believed before you came to faith. He's not something you add to what you already believed before you were a Christian. He changes everything by virtue of who he is. So, as the initiator of the new creation, Jesus is preeminent over the new creation too. Third thing that we have to believe from this passage is that Jesus, the fullness of God, lacks nothing that we need. This Jesus, who is fully man, is also so much more. This text talks about how the fullness of God dwelt in him. He is the fullness of God. 
<clears throat> now, you stop and look at this. God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. How much of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus? The fullness of God, or all of God. Now, let's think about that for a second. As a man, he's finite. And yet, the fullness of the infinite God dwelled in him. What is Paul talking about? Am I the only person who kind of sits there and goes, what in the world is Paul talking about? Is he talking about the hypostatic union? Whereby uh, the divine, everlasting, eternal Son, who is infinite, is joined to a human nature so that we have one person who is both fully God and fully man? Is that what Paul is talking about here? Is Paul talking about something like what we see in the Gospel according to Luke? Where it, he, he always says that Jesus did this in, in the, being filled with the Spirit. And so the miracles Jesus did and the, and the proclamations that Jesus made, he was doing because he was filled with the Spirit. He was relying upon the, the Spirit. In other words, the fullness of God through the Spirit was dwelling in him. Is that what Paul means? Or is Paul thinking about what Jesus said uh, that John records in his Gospel about how He is in the Father and the Father is in Him? There's a mute, this idea of mutual indwelling amongst the Godhead. So that the Father fully dwells in both the Son and the Spirit, and the Son fully dwells in both the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit fully dwells with, in both the Son and the Father. Is that what He's talking about? I don't know. They're all true. However, Scripture confirms all three of those things. And so whatever Paul means, this we know, that there was no part of God that was not in Christ. And so... It gets back to that idea of the exact, the image of God. He fully represents God completely. So when we read about who God is in places like Exodus 34, where the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims his name and his character, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty. That God is fully in Christ. Every attribute of God is fully in Christ. This means that Jesus has no rivals. Okay? Like, like this year's MVP. Who is it? Cabrera, Trout. There's no comparison. Jesus has no such rival. 
There's no one that you can kind of go, eh, you know, I'm not sure, God or Jesus or Buddha. Not in the same ballpark. Not in the same universe. There's no comparison between the two. He has no compliments. You don't need Jesus and the Archangel Michael. Jesus. There's no supplement. Well, you know, Jesus is really good for, you know, uh, saving us from our sins, but we, we have this other need and we gotta, gotta bring in this other minor deity to somehow supplement Jesus so that we can have a full good life, you know. Or perhaps, you know, like it was popular a while ago, perhaps I need to bury a mini statue of St. Joseph so that my house sells. No. I had neighbors who did that. It's Christ. There's no deficiency in Jesus that requires a lesser deity or angelic being or saint or anything else. You might say, who does anything like that? Lots of people do. In some places in Africa, what the, what those tribes do is they kind of um, bring Jesus in and kind of meld Christianity with their tribal religion. We see this in the Caribbean as well. Uh, you know, Santa Maria is Catholicism joined with voodoo and other other kind of stuff. This is popular. Sorry, in India. Okay, where, where the, the Hindus are, are, they don't have one God. They have thousands of gods. And so for them, it's just easy to go, oh, cool, you know, we'll add them to our pantheon. No, Jesus supplants. He replaces. He pushes them out because they're nothing compared to him. Supreme. So who do we, where do we go when we need mercy or righteousness or grace or wisdom or power? We go to Jesus. That's why John Calvin, in writing about this text, says that we must draw from the fullness of Christ everything good that we desire for our salvation. So if you need or want wisdom, there's one place that you go. If you need purity of mind because you're, you're bothered by impure thoughts or, you know, greed, whatever, there's one place to go. Christ. If you're bothered by envy, there's one place to go. If you need power to stand up under trial, to to stand up under persecution or a great affliction, there's one place to go. You draw it from Jesus. Whatever you need. And so we are to live in light of our union with Christ, drawing all we need from Him by depending upon Him in prayer, by receiving the Lord's Supper as a means of grace, of hearing the Word read and preached as a means of grace.
We look to Jesus for these things. And so Jesus is sufficient to save us completely, precisely because he's full of God. Here's your bonus point. Jesus, the only sufficient mediator, reconciles all things. It is because of his fullness that Jesus is the only sufficient mediator between God and man. Paul immediately moves into this idea of fullness so that he would to reconcile to himself all things. The purpose of the incarnation was reconciliation. Jesus didn't come here for a nice change of pace. He didn't come for a different kind of vacation to, or to see how the other side lived. He came for reconciliation. To take two parties that are at odds with one another and bring them together in peace. That's why he came. He had to come because although he was the creator of everything, the creation rebelled through the sin of Adam. And we see in Genesis that it was not just humanity that was plagued by Adam's sin. Okay? It was also creation. That's the, now it's by the sweat of your brow that you're going to eat. And so <clears throat> creation became a hostile place. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how creation was subjected to the curse because of Adam's sin, and it groans. That which Adam did was beyond our thoughts and imaginations in its how deadly and devastating it was. We'll talk more about that next week. But <coughs> so Jesus comes to put the hostilities, the enmity to an end. And there is this cosmic dimension precisely because the creation is experiencing the curse. But we have to recognize this from Romans 5. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We have to reckon with that reality that the world, the humanity, was not just, you know, mildly displeased with God. Enemies. Mortal enemies. And the only way that they could be reconciled to God was that one who was both God and man would come to reconcile them. And how did he reconcile them? Making peace by the blood of his cross. This reconciliation, this peacemaking required blood. Now, if you're to look at what's going on, say, in Israel right now, they would say, yes, peacemaking requires blood. The blood of my enemy. Whoever, whoever side you're on. You know, <clears throat> Hamas, it seems, won't be happy until every Jew is dead. 
At least that's what Hamas says, and that's what Iran says. Mortal enemies, that's the idea. But instead of peace being made through the obliteration of your enemy, what happens here is that Jesus dies as a substitute to take the place of. So the enemy does not get obliterated, so the enemy gets reconciled. He pays the penalty, the punishment that was due the rebel, that the rebel can come home. He was the only sufficient sacrifice that would end the war between creator and creation. Now, because it says, reconcile to himself all things, origin. Some of you have heard of origin. Topher perked up. Origin? Okay. Yeah, one of the church fathers. <clears throat> the basis of this passage, he argued that everything would be reconciled to God. Okay? And so, you know, you have people following in the, the footsteps of origin. You have guys like uh, George MacDonald, who was a, uh, wrote fiction as well as a little bit of theology, I think. This idea of Christian universalism that all people, you know, they'll, they'll go to hell, it'll be temporary, uh, but they'll see the light, so to speak, and they'll, they'll convert and be saved. Okay, so for George MacDonald, George, yeah, George MacDonald, don't want to confuse him with Gordon MacDonald, pastor in, in Massachusetts for a long time. <clears throat> all people are ultimately reconciled. Rob Bell has picked up this drumbeat in his uh, book, Love Wins. It is not a Christian biblical view. For we see even here in Colossians 2, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. That doesn't sound like reconciliation to me. That sounds like beating the living daylights out of to me. If Jesus is sending the goats into the fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels, that means, first off, the devil and his angels are not going to be reconciled to Jesus Christ, and neither are the goats. This is a horrible reality, but one we cannot avoid. And that's not Paul's point here. To avoid the reality of hell, Hades, So we see that these rulers and authorities were not redeemed, but put to shame. They're conquered. They're triumphed over. They're beaten down, crushed. But we see something else as well in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Okay? So we're... If, if you believe in Christ, you are reconciled to God through Christ. God's the one who brought this about. But he also gave us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning we get to talk about it with people, that they too might experience reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, a.k.a. evangelism. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us, to us, the message of reconciliation. He did not just entrust it to the Apostle Paul, but to all the church. 
we have that ministry of re- uh, message of reconciliation as well. But the message of reconciliation makes no sense apart from the message also of condemnation apart from Christ. And so, peace with God is only experienced by faith in Christ as mediator and Savior. And so, you know, when, when we sin and we need to be reconciled with God, it's, we're not reconciled because we put some extra money in the plate. We don't send God flowers and say, forgive me, please. Okay? We don't send a card, you know, just kind of saying, oh, I'm sorry. And, you know, for your trouble, here's a gift card to Walmart or I don't know what. Okay? It sounds silly. And I'm doing that for a purpose. Because there's nothing we can do to make it right although we often try. If there is anything that is reconciled to God, it is because they have been reconciled to God through Christ. So if you're still trying to get goody-goody points by doing good things or beating your, or maybe you take the opposite track, not doing good things, but making yourself feel really horrible for your sin, you know, if I just beat myself up a little bit more, God might have pity upon me. That's not reconciliation in Christ. It's about trusting and repenting. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's it. So, that's four points. Lots of points. Baseball fans, I said, love to argue about who's the greatest, who's the greatest hitter, who's the greatest pitcher, who's the greatest player. It could be in a particular year. It could be for a lifetime. Who knows? And that's small potatoes. It's insignificant when compared to this question of who is the greatest God. This is a question of ultimate importance because our lives hang in the very balance Is there any other God, Paul would say, who created all that exists? Is there any other God who redeemed everything that exists? Is there any other God who is supreme over all other authorities on heaven and in earth? Who is sufficient for earthly and eternal needs? Paul and Timothy wanted the Colossians, and by extension us, to know that there is no other power that complements or supplements Jesus Christ. He is all we need. And to rely on any other is to disown Him and dishonor Him as preeminent over all. So, let us pray. Father, it is hard for us to uh, understand this sometimes. And I think it's because the way pride works in our hearts. That we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are sufficient for some things. Oh, we need Jesus for a few. But there's others. We're okay. Father, humble us by the text. Humble us 
and exalt your son. Humble us so that we would exalt your son. Humble us so that we would depend upon your son. Humble us that we would freely offer your son to those we know who do not have him. Be at work in us, Father, because of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, that we would not that we would understand this more and more, and we would experience this more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.